News Talk 1110-993 WBT. A reminder, it is Tuesday, although it does feel like Monday. But it's Tuesday, and at 2 o'clock we'll talk with Tim Moore, the Speaker of the North Carolina House. Right now we're talking about jobs, and um, I'm kind of curious what folks are seeing right now, because I know that the unemployment benefit is uh, getting ready. It's now expiring. The extra federal unemployment benefit is expiring, and so... Is that going to now help? Are we going to see a bunch of people now going into the uh, the job market that were sitting on the sidelines? And I'm also kind of curious, would you hire somebody that's been sitting out for so long? Now, the other side of this is that there may be like some rationality to the decision. I had a conversation with a relative of mine a couple of uh, weeks ago, and he was talking about how like the the federal money that they've just been given because they've got two kids. So now they get this this money from the federal government because they've got two kids. Um, they increased the, um, the the federal government, Joe Biden's administration, increased the food stamps or the, what do they call it, the, the SNAP, they call it now, uh, the food assistance program. And what that does is, we had this discussion uh, about the welfare cliff. You essentially create so much of a gap that for somebody who is um, getting the benefits of a certain value, they now have to make even more money before they can replace those value or, or the, those uh, benefits with their own income. So this is just a really crude example, but let's just say it's you're making twenty five thousand dollars a year, and you get uh, benefits to the tune of let's say another. 15. So 25K plus 15K is 40K, which means if you want to get off of the welfare benefits, whether that's the, uh, you know, the Medicaid, whether it's uh, the food stamps, whatever it is, if you want to get off of these different benefits, you need to now make it $15,000 extra per year, right? In order to replace that benefit value. Well, how do you do that? How do you go from a job making 25K to a job making 15 or 40K? How do you make that jump? That's the cliff. And so here's the thing also. If you're at a job making 25000 and you start to increase a little bit, let's say you get a $10,000 raise. Let's say you go in and you're like, or you find another job, you're like, I need more money. So you go and you get yourself an extra 10K. Now you're at 35K. Well, that means you lose all the benefits. Because now you you price yourself out, you make too much money. It's means tested, right? So you're out, and now what? Now you take so essentially you're making thirty five k, but you've lost the difference that five thousand dollar difference. So it's essentially like you took a five thousand dollar pay cut, right? So there's a level of rationality involved here where you're saying if I do more work, I'm going to be penalized for it. This is the this is the perverse incentives we've created with our system. And most people agree that there should be a safety net in the system. The problem is, when does the safety net become a hammock? When does the hammock become a trap, right? When, when, do, when are you hurting people instead of helping? And this is one of the things that gets me with the left is like they, they, they never – Stop to reassess whether these programs are actually hurting people. It's another one of the ironies is also they seem to be very uninterested in 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 uh, the waste in these programs and the fraud and the abuse. And I've got a couple of stories here as well about fraud.
of all the people you would think that would be, you know, watching every single dollar spent for the programs that they wanted in place, right? They they lobby for the programs, they get them in place, they want to expand them all the time, they want to fund them even more. But when you have a system, you've got a program that is wasting money, like you're now not helping all of the people that you said you wanted to be helping, but they always seem very uninterested in pursuing that. It's always the conservatives that are like looking to, you know, uh, to cut out the waste, the fraud, the abuse, and, and uh, whatnot. So here's another hint, though, according to the MSN story about uh, who's to blame for the poor jobs report. Hourly worker pay surged in August. Wages went up 4.3% over the past year. That's the biggest increase since 2008, if you exclude the early days of the pandemic. Soaring pay clearly shows that businesses are still trying to hire workers or paying existing employees more so they don't leave for a higher paying job somewhere else. So Americans, by the way, have been quitting at record levels to pursue other opportunities. So that's happening, too. So what you're getting also is a lot of uh, this analysis, quote unquote, that is saying, well, this is really just, you know, people having the freedom, the employees having the freedom to go where they want to go, and they don't have to take these jobs that they didn't want to take. And so this is what this is what you know. Pe- it's the free market essentially, which of course is absurd because you've got so much government intervention in it. It's hardly a free market. But uh, how can it be? They ask at the MSN story. Jeffrey Partash. He says, "How can it be that the U.S. has a labor shortage when job openings are at a record high and millions of people are not working?" For one thing. Millions of people are still collecting unemployment benefits that in many cases pay more than their old jobs did. That's because the federal government is temporarily doling out extra money to the unemployed during the pandemic. Other surveys show that several million people who were close to retirement age left the workforce during the pandemic. And a lot of them probably aren't going back. Right. They're just early retirement. They're done. When will the supply of workers increase? Perhaps as early as this month, because the extra federal benefits expired. Though the Biden administration is telling states that they should keep paying the benefits through all of the other stimulus programs. And if the public schools reopen and they stay open, then that would also give unemployed parents more leeway to seek out a job. It's people not wanting to work. There was a there was a fellow that I uh, interviewed several months ago. I think I spoke about uh, we were talking about the wisdom of crowds. He wrote a book when politicians panicked, and his belief is that the reason why everybody locked down was that we basically are are wealthy enough to do it. Our society is wealthy enough in general, in you know, in total, the society that we could just take a year off. That everybody was just like, oh, you know what? I'm just so tired. I don't want to work, and everybody just like said, okay, we'll do this, that we had the ability to do it and we did it. And there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of negative ramifications, but this, it also highlighted a lot of problems in the, um, uh, in the economy that have existed before mentioned earlier about trades. I remember having this conversation two, three years ago with, um, my, uh, the guy, the guy who owns the, um, the automotive repair shop that I used back in Asheville. And I was talking to him and he's like, man, I, we just got back from a conference out in Los Angeles where all of these 
uh, you know, auto uh, shop owners. They all get together every year. And he's like, in every single panel discussion, every breakout group, everything was about how do we get more auto techs hired? How do we keep auto technicians? Because people aren't going into the fields. Uh, those that are there, they're in uh, the good ones. They're in high demand. And so they can basically write their own tickets. The same thing is happening across all the trades, right? People don't want to do the work. They don't want to do those jobs. And I mean, I got friends who do those jobs. They make a lot of money doing those jobs. This gets now to the education system and where are we directing all of all, uh, all of the kids when they come out of the, you know, K-12, do we funnel them into trade schools? Do we funnel them into colleges? That gets into the debate about colleges. And what are the colleges doing? This whole system that is built around debt, long-term debt, that is essentially employing a lot of people that got degrees in the field simply so they can teach. I think I mentioned earlier a money laundering kind of an operation. It's very similar, <laughs> it seems to me. Millions of jobless Americans lost their unemployment benefits on Monday, leaving only a handful of economic support programs for those who are still being hit financially by the year-and-a-half-old coronavirus pandemic. This is the AP business writer, Ken Sweet. Headline, jobless Americans have few options as benefits expire. Few, one of those few options would be to get a job, just so we're clear. Um, this is part of the part of the beef I have with the way media frames stories, because if I like if I wanted to write a story right like this, I could frame it as generalizing everybody who is drawing the un, the extended and richer unemployment benefits from the last you know year. I could I could generalize everybody in that cohort and say that none of them want to work. But that would not be accurate. There are Probably people that do want to work, did want to work. They they lost their job. They're in an industry that it's difficult to look. I'm a talk radio host. These are not exactly uh, the most numerous jobs on the face of the earth anymore. Right. So I get it. I have been unemployed. I got unemployment, not during the pandemic, but I got unemployment in my life at, uh, 10 years ago or so. And so I understand the need for these kinds of programs, you know, right? the social safety net, for example. So I get it. But when I'm writing the story, I don't ascribe that motive to everybody in the cohort, which is usually the way the media covers this cohort. They always say, there's like, oh, these poor people, they just can't, they just can't get the programs. That's the problem. If they could just get the program, then you know, everything, they, they, they get right on the right course and everything would be okay. And that's not true for all of the people. I don't even know, by the way, like if it's a majority. I honestly don't. But there's always, the, there's the view that infects the stories. And this is the view. That millions of people lost their benefits, leaving only a handful of economic support programs for those who are still being hit financially by the year-and-a-half-old coronavirus pandemic. They're still being hit financially. That's everybody in the cohort. 
and they only have a handful of these programs. There's just a handful of them. Like, that's not enough. Whatever the handful of programs is, it's not enough for these people who have been so hit by the pandemic. Is it possible that there are a lot of people that are actually making a more rational decision and saying, I take more money home being on unemployment than I did when I was working at my job that I hated. And so they don't want to go back to work. Here's something else too. Um, I used to work in the service industry. Ryan actually still does uh, part-time, but um, I can tell you there are a lot of people in the service industry that enjoy, shall we say the benefits of the lifestyle. Oh, what's that chuckle for? Ryan seems to understand what I mean when I say that. He just did it again. See that? So for folks who aren't aware, there is a certain lifestyle. Now, I'm not talking about like running a daytime lunch service or lunch counter kind of an operation. That's a different kind of lifestyle. Okay. But if you're working evenings and you're closing down the restaurant slash bar at, you know, 11 o'clock, you're getting home at like, Midnight or so after work, you're going out, you're partying, you're trying to meet up with all the friends that don't work in the service industry, which they work different hours. And so they're out partying. They're already like well into their six pack of beer. So you got to kind of catch up, which then kind of opens the door to different, uh, shall we say, substances. Right. There is an entire culture. And there are a lot of people in that culture that if you say, hey. Here's a whole bunch of money. You don't have to work, but you still get to live the culture. You can still get to live in the culture, live that lifestyle. A lot of people in the industry, they're going to take that deal. They're going to take that deal. Is that helping them or hurting them? Economists Peter McCrory and Daniel Silver of J.P. Morgan found, quote, zero correlation between job growth and state decisions to drop the federal unemployment aid, at least so far, they say. An economist at Columbia University, Kyle Coombs, found only minimal benefits. Again, this is the AP, which estimates that roughly 9 million Americans are going to lose all or some of the benefits, while the White House has encouraged states to keep paying the $300 weekly benefit by using money from stimulus bills. No states have opted to do so. Some states, as I just said, had already stopped taking the federal money. North Carolina uh, lawmakers tried to do so as well, uh, but that was blocked. So the amount of money injected by the federal government into jobless benefits since the pandemic began is nothing short of astronomical. The roughly $650 billion, $650 billion, that's $10 billion per state. This according to the nonpartisan committee for a responsible federal budget kept millions of Americans who lost their jobs through no fault of their own. No, through the government's fault. Like, that's why they lost their jobs. Government cost them their jobs. Government closed down the boss, closed down the business. So it kept them in their apartments, paying for food and gasoline and keeping up with their bills. The banking industry has largely attributed the new defaults on loans this past 18 months to the government relief efforts. The few defaults on loans right so look govco's been bailing everybody out yay
story out of Asheville, WLOS-TV, reporting that more than a dozen people face federal charges. More than $3.4 million has been seized by federal grand juries. Charges are now pending. Um, This is all part of uh, their story that more, uh, more than a dozen people are charged in pandemic fraud in the Western District, U.S. Attorney's Western District that includes Asheville, but also Charlotte. In North Carolina, for example, 24-year-old Jasmine Clifton recently pleaded guilty to wire fraud. Clifton, from Charlotte, submitted an online fake loan application to the SBA for an economic injury disaster loan using a fake online retail business. Investigators say Clifton used the $149,000 for a shopping spree at several diamond and luxury stores. She's facing 20 years in prison and a half million dollars in fines. The uh, Western District Federal Court includes Asheville and Charlotte, had the majority of the cases. All 13 were charged in Charlotte. I'm just as shocked as you are that when you open up a multi-trillion dollar spigot that people would take advantage of it for nefarious purposes. I I could not see that coming. Um, This story from the News and Observer headline, Oxfam ranks North Carolina as the worst state in America for wages and worker protections, which I'm not sure that the millions of people that keep moving here were aware of this. Maybe we need to promote this story. Get the word out. This is a terrible, terrible state to work. Please stop coming. Uh, When it comes to wages, unemployment benefits, and laws set in place to protect and support workers, North Carolina is the worst state. This dead last 52nd... Wait a minute. We got 52 states now? Oh, they're including Washington and Puerto Rico. Okay. So uh, we are dead last 52nd in the best and worst states to work in America 2021 report. Um, It was released by Oxfam America, a national charity organization that focuses on labor policy and human rights. The index ranks states by assigning scores in three areas. Wage policies, worker protection policies, and right to unionize policies. (laughs) So it's just based on policies And so if you have the right policies that Oxfam likes, then you're going to rank higher on their list. And guess what kinds of policies Oxfam likes? Yeah, not conservative ones. And so I actually think this is worth celebrating. We're number one. We're number one. We're, yeah, like we have the least amount of stupid policies on the books in America. Yay, North Carolina. The other, sorry, I know I just said that, and now I've attracted another million people to the state. The other bottom five states were also in the South, with Georgia in 51st place, Mississippi, 50th, Alabama, 49th, and South Carolina at 48th. Um, Virginia ranks as 23rd. It's the only Southern state in the upper half of the index due to new worker protection laws, including a raised minimum wage that got approved by the legislature and the racist blackface or Klan outfit wearing governor, Ralph Northam. Um, North Carolina ranks so low because it quote, 
doesn't invest in its workers. This according to Oxfam. Um, We have the second to last in wages ranking because the minimum wage is $7.25, and that has been unchanged since 2009. Uh, The average, by the way, the unemployment, like if you're, the people who make, not not unemployment, the people who who make minimum wage, like they're, they're kids, which by the way, I got a family member who's like 14 years old. Kid went out trying to find a job. Nobody would hire him. Nobody would hire hire him because of his age. And he's willing to work. They need workers. And he's like, oh, score. I'm going to go get a job. Nope. Sorry, kid. You're 14. Can't work. Won't let him work. It's crazy. Um, But no, you're not supposed to make minimum wage for the rest of your life. That's supposed to be the minimum wage. You start off with that and then you make more than that. And from what I understand, you heard from the earlier caller, they're not... You know, restaurants aren't paying minimum wage to people, right? They're paying more than that because they need people. Much of the policies criticized by Oxfam concern the legislative power of the North Carolina General Assembly and the regulatory power of the North Carolina Department of Labor, both of which are Republican-controlled. Pat Ryan, spokesman for the Senate leader Phil Berger, dismisses the report as a trivial ranking of laws based on political leanings, which is accurate. Um, Pat Ryan said, quote, this left-wing advocacy group that most people have never even heard of simply doesn't like the policies that North Carolina Republicans have adopted. There's no rigorous statistical analysis here. They're just giving high scores to laws they like and low scores to laws that they don't like, which is probably why just about every Democrat-run state has a high score, and every Republican-run state has a low score. Right, that's it. But Oxfam, they got their study published, this big story in the News and Observer, written by Aaron Sanchez-Guerra, who I think is a business reporter or something. But that's how, like, that's how you, that's how you get a narrative into the public uh, psyche, right? It, into the public square, it's how you essentially idea launder. You put out a, uh, look, I'm going to say this is probably going to anger some people, but Wallet Hub, same thing. I know, everybody's like, oh, a Wallet Hub study. Like, okay. You know, like, you realize the purpose of the Wallet Hub studies is to get what we call earned media, right? The free pub, uh, the free publicity is to get news stories written about their study so you say Wallet Hub all the time. And that's why they put out so many studies and they rank the states because they know that states all over the place uh, are going to be interested in their rankings. And then the, re- the, the newsrooms with the reporters in those states are going to do stories on them and say the name Wallet Hub. That's how that works. That's what Oxfam just did. That's how they laundered that story. But now it's going to take hold as we're a terrible place to do business, even though we just swiped another congressional seat from New York State. I had some uh, sad news. I saw this. Michael K. Williams, Omar. Everybody knows him as Omar. Omar Little from The Wire. Yeah, he died. He was only like 54 years old. And I knew him. So I I saw him in The Wire and I knew him actually better because I watched like all of the Boardwalk Empire 
series, and he was chalky white in uh, in that series, 2010 through 2014. Um, he was uh, he was known as Omar from The Wire. He was the guy who had the big scar right down the middle of his face, and uh, this from was this the AP? Yeah, the AP saying that uh, he had created one of the most lovable, or sorry, one of the most beloved and enduring characters in a prime era of television. He died, he was found dead Monday afternoon by family members in his Brooklyn penthouse apartment. Um, It looks like drugs. And he had battled addiction uh, as a younger man. Um, Let's see here, do, 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 do. Uh, he appeared in the films 12 Years a Slave, also Assassin's Creed. He's actually up for an Emmy for his role in HBO's Lovecraft Country. And um, he has been nominated four other times, but this would be the first time. He also had some uh, minor roles in Law and Order as well as The Sopranos. Uh, he told Stephen Colbert on The Late Show back in 2016... The character of Omar thrusted me into the limelight. He said, I had very low self-esteem growing up, a high need to be accepted, a corny kid from the projects. So all of a sudden, I'm like, Omar, yo, I'm getting respect from people who probably would have taken my lunch money as a kid. (laughs) Um, He was born in 1966 in Brooklyn, the son of a uh, mother from Nassau, Bahamas, and a father from South Carolina. He was raised in the Vanderveer Projects in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. He went to George Westinghouse Career and Technical Education High School. His first forays into entertainment were as a dancer for artists, including Missy Elliott, Genuine, Crystal Waters, and Technotronic. I don't know any of them. Um, And how did he get the scar? Do you know who this guy was? Do you know who Michael K. Williams was? Uh, I do not. I do not know how he got the scar, but Michael K. Williams is actually the first guest that I ever booked in radio. Really? Yep. Oh. So my first station. Uh, so I'm from Baltimore. So the first station I worked for. Um, to the Wire. Uh, this was ten. This was either nine or ten years ago. So the 20 year anniversary of the Wire is coming up next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, the hosts I worked with at the time, I had not watched the Wire yet uh, when we were doing this, but we did a 10 year anniversary of of the Wire being on the air. So I guess it'll have been 2012. 2012. Mm-hmm. And Michael K. Williams was the first person that I ever booked in radio. Yeah, the series ran from 2002 through 2008. We actually, my wife and I just watched it all. Uh, she had never seen it, and I had seen, I think I had seen probably like four of the six. I think I missed like the first two or three seasons. So, uh, yeah, so we went out, we actually just bought the... A lot of people skip, uh, skip season two. <laughs> Why? Season two is a little slow for me. I've actually I mean, grown. I didn't know that at the time. I've actually grown to love it a little bit more. Yeah. But the, so the first time I actually tried to watch The Wire, I gave up in season two, and then I, and then I tried it again, and I've actually grown a lot more fond of it. But yeah, a lot of people don't make it past season two. Yeah, a uh, I was not aware of that. I yeah, I thought because I mean, every season they would then shift and tell different parts of the story of the city. Like one year was about the newsroom at the right. local paper and stuff. One was about a particular police department and all this. So. Um, a fight that he so here's how he got the scar. He got it apparently on his twenty first twenty fifth birthday. A fight that erupted while he was celebrating his twenty fifth birthday left him with a fearsome scar down his face. It goes right from like right between his eyes on his forehead, and it goes right down. Then it curves down the side of his face, like 
between his eye and the bridge of his nose and goes across his cheek. And uh, he told National Public Radio that he sustained the gruesome injury when he went outside to get some air during a popping party at a bar in Queens. I have no idea what a popping party is. I don't either. Popping balloons, maybe? Is that what a popping party is? Popping champagne bottles? Popping caps in people's butts? I don't know. What's the popping? Okay. I saw that two of my other friends were being surrounded by some dudes who I didn't know. And it looked like they were about to get jumped, he recalled. And I said, yo, I'm ready to leave. Let's go back. I'm going to go back home now. But Williams said, this one dude kept pacing behind me. And he kept like, you know, like sucking his teeth. I don't know what that, I'm trying to imagine what, am I doing something like that? Like slurping? I don't know, that'd be slurping your teeth. Anyway, he's like, yo, what's up with that dude? Yo, bro, what's your problem? And the dude wipes his hand across his mouth. And then what I thought, he, he smacks me in the face. But what he did was, he spit out a razor. Apparently, he had a razor in his mouth. And when he wiped his hand across his mouth, he put the razor in uh, between his middle finger and his ring finger. And then he just went and swiped me right down the face. And that's what cut his face open. He says it was actually the first hit of the fight. So we managed to escape with our lives barely that night. But while Williams survived the attack, the gash from the razor blade created a distinctive scar that ran down the center of his forehead, crossed the bridge of his nose, continued across his right cheek, and ending uh, right near his mouth. At the time, Williams was working as a dancer in music videos for stars including Madonna and George Michael. And I can't imagine him as a dancer. I just... Uh, and, but while, and while the incident left him marked for life, it also got him noticed by the directors with whom he was working he said things changed immediately after that. Directors wanted me, uh, didn't want me to dance in the videos anymore. They wanted him to act. That's how he. That's so, pretty. That's a pretty cool story. Yeah, that the scar actually got him from being a dancer to a movie star, a TV I, star. I have seen some of the videos of him uh, doing uh, like in the dance routines on Twitter over the last twenty four hours. It's actually been pretty cool. There's a lot of people that have come out to say a lot of good things about him, like uh, Isaiah Whitlock, who was Senator Clay mm-hmm. Davis. Like, there's a bunch of stuff on. It seems like everyone that you would think that 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 you know he was just on that show basically and some of those other shows. But there's been a lot of people outside of the the HBO world that have said good things about uh, about him. He was um, so the character he played in the show was. Omar Little, and he basically robbed the drug houses being run by the gangs. So he was like, he targeted the gangbangers. And right. so like he, and so everybody was always afraid of him, but he had a code, and that was his deal. And he said that was the famous line from the show, is that everyone's got to have a code. you got to have a code, and that's what he lived by. One of my favorite scenes from the show is when he's in the, um, he's in the courtroom, and the lawyer is like is is basically criticizing him for 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 being for basically uh, profiting off of the drug trade. And then Omar Little's like, "Well, you're doing the same exact thing." Mm-hmm. And the the lawyer just just like completely caught off guard by it. Yeah. So it's a really good series. If you haven't seen it, The Wire. And if you do, you'll know that Omar Little, uh, that's the guy who we're talking about. His real name is Michael K. Williams. Passed away at the age of 54, and um, apparently it's. Uh, 
at least this is what the reports are, is that it is more than likely a drug overdose, heroin overdose in his apartment in in Brooklyn. Very sad. We go now to the News Center, WBT News on News Talk 1110993 WBT.